start if we could. Welcome everyone. Good to see all of you. Good morning. It's time to start. Uh, glad all of you are here. Excited uh, as we continue our study in Christ and culture. So why don't we open with prayer and ask for the Lord's help. Father, thank you for your gift of time, your gift of day after day. Every, every day uh, uniquely crafted by God. As the scripture says, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. But Lord, you've also given us as your people uh, one day in seven that we separate from normal life and we come together, we assemble together to worship and to study your word and to praise you and remind ourselves that you are above everything that we do. And I pray that in this Bible for Life class in Christ and culture, you'd give us wisdom to be able to understand the world that we live in and the mission you've given us in this world to be light in a dark time. Uh, We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hope you all got the handout. If not, it's over on the music stand by the door. Uh, Continuing to move through this topic of Christ and culture. And we come to a second, uh, our second week, and we're going to talk today about worldview. And it's not the last time in this uh, class, Christ and culture, that we're going to talk about the concept of worldview. Um, But fundamental to today's class and, and the handouts that you have here is this book here by Nancy Percy, um, Total Truth. I would recommend it. It's very long, um, and I'm w- making my way through it on my bike rides. I do audio book, and so I listen to it and, and just little by little walk through it. And it's been very, very helpful. It's an excellent book. Written in 2004, so 18 years ago, um, but still very relevant. Total Truth, and then subtitle, Liberating Christianity from its Cultural Captivity. And she uh, was a, a disciple of Francis Schaeffer and uh, has a lot of his insights to bring forth in understanding Western culture. And this is a quote from Schaeffer that we'll be, begin with today. Christianity is not a series of truths in the plural, but rather truth spelled with a capital T. Truth about total reality, not just about religious things. Biblical Christianity is truth concerning total reality and the intellectual holding of that total truth and then living in the light of that truth. But what we're going to see today is how revolutionary and different that is from the secular world that we live in uh, here in the West in which there is a very vigorous division between religious convictions, values, morals, things like that and scientifically ascertained facts, uh, which are, are the, the kind of cohesive center of our life together in the public square. A, a vigorous division between those two that Christians should never have accepted, shouldn't accept now, and must, she argues, push against and fight against if we want to have a salt and light effect on our world. Uh, to support uh, Schaefer's statements, I pulled out these scriptures uh, from John's Gospel. Jesus said... I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, The more we ponder on just the the purity of Jesus' statement, I am the truth. What is the difference between Jesus saying that and Jesus saying, I teach the truth or I exemplify the truth? Would we say that Jesus teaches the truth? Absolutely. Would we say that he lived out the truth? Yes, that he exemplifies it. Yes, yes, yes. But that's not what he says here. I am the truth. What do, what do those words mean to you as a Christian? I am the truth. It starts there. What was the rest of you said? It originates with Jesus. 
Okay? Anyone else? I am the truth. There's no truth outside of Christ. Okay, of his deity. Um, all truth emanates from him, begins with him, f- from him and through him and to him are all things. Uh, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's an incredible assertion. Anything that could ever be said to be true in this world connects directly to Jesus. I mean, that's, that's an amazing, comprehensive statement. Some, a statement only God himself could make. I am the truth. And then this, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Same question. Again, not the Bible teaches the truth, but God's word is the truth. It's like, well, wait a minute, that's in the same gospel. Jesus is the same one that said it. So which is it? Is it I am the truth according to Jesus or is it the Bible is the truth? Well, both, both. And there is such an intimate connection between Jesus and the word that he even says, uh, or, or John begins his gospel saying, in the beginning was the word. There is a complete connection between the written word and Jesus so that we know that we, we know nothing about Jesus apart from the scripture. You cannot glean or discern the second person of the Trinity from nature. He has to be proclaimed, he has to be revealed, he has to be taught. Uh, and so there's no, it's not a different statement. Jesus saying, I am the truth, and Jesus saying, sanctify them by the, by the, by the word, your word is truth. And then again, this testimony that he makes to Pontius Pilate on his trial, uh, at the time of his trial. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest from the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. Pilate said, you are a king then. So this is relevant to the trial, right? Pilate is interested in whether this man is a threat to Roman rule in Palestine. Are you claiming to be a king? Was Jesus claiming to be king? Oh, absolutely. And notice the courage of Jesus, knowing very well what Pilate was about, knowing very well what was happening, knowing that he was on trial for his life. He, he, he says, I am a king. He says, you are right in saying that I'm a king. He didn't shrink back from it at all. He always said the truth. But what's the nature of your kingdom? In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. It's a kingdom of truth. And he's calling people out of falsehood into truth. And uh, that is the, the essence of his kingdom. And then note Pilate's response. What is truth? Now, there's nothing wrong with saying what is truth. That's actually a very, very good question to ask. But don't say what is truth and then leave the room. Because that's a rhetorical question at that point, implying what? When Pilate says what is truth and walks out, what is he saying by that question? I'm sorry? I have, I have the truth already, maybe. He, he doesn't, want doesn't want to know the truth. Could it be he's like an early postmodern saying there isn't any absolute truth? I don't actually think there is a truth. What is truth? No one really can know. No one can know for sure. There are different ways. We don't know what Pilate meant. We know in any case it wasn't good. All right? Don't say what is truth when truth incarnate is standing in front of you and he can give you all the truth you would ever need to save your soul, you should stop and talk to him. But of course, we know what was going to happen there. 
All right, so we're going to walk through that today. We're going to look at, at uh, the issue of worldview and culture. Now, last week I gave you kind of three uses or senses of the word culture. Culture wars, which is what a lot of you might be interested in right now. The sense of, of our non-Christian Western culture being hostile to our Christian faith. And the fact that we're, we, have to, we have to fight and there's different responses. We gave you... Um, you know, the Christ in culture, the five different responses uh, that Christians have made to culture. Nancy Percy is definitely in one of those categories, Christ transforming culture. That's who she is. And that's what she wants. That's what she's advocating. We need to get in there and do everything we can in the name of Christ, in the name of the word of God to transform uh, the culture surrounding us. But so we talked about that, uh, about that last time. Uh, the second uh, being kind of high culture or culture museum or somebody who's a cultured person, that being just displays of art, music, different things, which are part of uh, what we call common grace, the way that human beings in the image of God do amazing things in this world. Um, There's that use of the word culture. And then the third is a cross-cultural missionary. So that would be somebody who is trying to learn aspects of the receptor culture of the the, uh, lost people that they're seeking to win to Christ and use those aspects as much as they can, to become like those people in their dress, in their food, uh, in their <laughs> mannerisms, and their customs, as much as possible. That would be First Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To the Greeks, I became like a Greek to win the Greeks. So became like is I adopted their culture as much as I could. I didn't violate any moral principles, but wherever I could be like the Greeks, I would to win them. So that's what a missionary does. Those are three different aspects um, of culture. But behind all of those, all of those is worldview. Like there is a worldview behind an artist. The artist is trying to present his or her view of the world by their art. Um, and the same thing with architecture, with other things. There is a worldview behind it. There's definitely a worldview that the missionary needs to extract out and try to find what are those things that they can adopt and what are those things that they must overturn by a clear teaching of biblical truth. Uh, And then in culture wars, there's no doubt about it that there's this sense in which um, worldview is of the essence. You know, what is being taught in government schools? What is being, what's permeating our world? All right, so we're going to be immersed in that um, today. Now, uh, Nancy Percy uh, argues that the gospel is in a cage. Uh, if you look at the subtitle of her, of her book, Total Truth, Liberating Christianity from its Cultural Captivity. So Christians, she would argue, have allowed themselves and their worldview to be put in a cage in the uh, West, in America. Um, so what is the nature of that? So we're going to walk through that today. Uh, but she uh, draws out 19th century Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon. The gospel is a cage line. It does not need to be defended. It just needs to be let out of its cage. So there, I think she would say gospel, great, center, uh, but just truth. Biblical truth is like that too. Biblical truth is a lion. Just let it out. So what she's going to argue is what we need to do is present a compelling, captivating, biblical worldview that will push out all of the satanic counterfeits. And we need to do it in every area of life. That's the argument there. So the cultural captivity of American Christianity, the dominance, dominance of secularization in our natural worldview. Secularization, what is that? The split of the world into two realms, sacred and secular. Fundamental to the worldview of the West is secularization. 
that religion has no right to intrude into the physical realm of daily life, of politics, of business, of law, science, medicine, education, entertainment, sports, commerce, literature, the arts. Wow, that's everything, right? That's our culture. Religion has no rights, no role in any of those at all. You want to believe it in your own time, in the week, evenings and weekends, fine. But don't bring it to the workplace. Don't bring it to the public square. Don't bring it there. And we've all kind of agreed to that. We're going to assent to that. That's secularization, the secular world we live in. All right? All of these realms can and must operate completely free from any reference to any religion at all. Well, who made up that rule? Sure didn't come from the Holy Spirit. And why have Christians agreed to it? She's saying we shouldn't. We should, without shame, stand up in classrooms or in different places and say there is truth. And God is at the center of it. I would say fundamental all this, we need to keep in mind, meditate much on the fact that the triune God is eternal and nothing else is. Nothing. All of, all of the beings, if we could put it that way, beings, in the universe, in the physical and spiritual realm, are in two categories. Creator and creature. That's it. Creator and creature. And there was a time there was only creator and no creatures. We believe that. Everything had a start except God, right? So we are living in God's house. We're eating in God's kitchen. We're in God's living room. Imagine the gall of saying that he's not relevant to any of the rooms in the house. We're in his mansion. But why would we as Christians lay down for that? Say, you're right, you're right. We're not going to mention him. We're not going to talk about him, etc. Why would we agree to it? That's, that's the basic point. That's the essence of secularization. Tragically, most American Christians have meekly accepted the premise, glad for society's willingness to allow us to believe what we want in private. Isn't it nice of them to do that for us? To let us believe these things. Just as long as that freedom was there, as though, sorry, that freedom was theirs to give in the first place. They will permit us to believe what we want. Well, don't take it too lightly. There are totalitarian states that don't. Thought police and all that sort of stuff. But the public sphere in America vaunts very dominant on this matter, threatening to come after your private space if you should ever bring your religion into the public uh, space. So in this book, uh, she argues that Christians must not accept this secularization, but should fight to establish the truth claims of Christianity in every area of life. The gospel must be set free from its assigned cage, set free to roam powerfully. Christians should be delighted to apply biblical truth to their work and their public lives in all these areas. Politics, business, law, science, medicine, education, entertainment, sports, commerce, literature, the arts, without fear or shame. Christians must learn to present a superior worldview in all these areas than that presented by secularists. We want to take on their worldview and defeat it. We want to take it on and defeat it. Um, she argues politics not enough. In recent years, Christians have settled for winning some small victories by getting the right candidates elected who will establish Christian morals in a few key areas. But Percy argues that politics tends to reflect culture, not culture following politics. In other words, you got the whole thing reversed. If you think getting the right people elected is going to change culture, those elected people have to reflect the surrounding culture, especially in our political system. And so thinking we're going to get, get, culture, get politics to lead the way in changing culture is backwards, she argues. The old statement, you can't legislate morality, then would be recast in this area. You can't legislate culture. 
All right. Rather, legislators tend to follow public culture by the politics or policies that they establish. So Christians have been basically barking up the wrong tree, simplistically thinking politics would be enough. It isn't. In order to affect lasting change, we need to develop a Christian worldview and then implement that worldview in our daily lives, especially our professions. Losing our children. Not only have we lost the culture, but we are losing our own children because many people in the private or prior generations of Christians have not been able to develop and articulate a consistent Christian worldview that addresses all the issues raised by unbelievers. Young folks growing up in this present age are getting swept along by cultural forces they do not have the strength to resist. <clears throat> so she gives an illustration. At a Christian high school, a theology teacher strode to the front of the classroom where he drew a heart on one side of the blackboard and a brain on the other. The two are as divided as the two sides of the blackboard, he told the class. The heart is what we use for religion, while the brain is what we use for science. So there's a very clear secularization, a bifurcation, and this is at a Christian school. She would say, my friends, this should not be. (laughs) I mean, don't do that. Uh, Christian parents, teachers, pastors, youth group leaders need to see our youth being pulled along by the constant undertow of of powerful cultural trends. We need to give them more than a heart religion, so to speak, that cannot refute the ideas of our cultural day. All right? Heart versus brain. First of all, that use of the word heart is not even biblical. The heart thinks in the Bible. The heart does a lot of stuff. You ought to look up all the things the Bible says the heart does. There are scriptural verses that that show the complexity of the human heart. So to have that heart being feeling or emotion not connected to fact is just not biblical. But anyway, that's that bifurcation. Heart versus brain. And then public sphere versus private sphere. Religious sentiment versus verifiable fact. So this is foundational to her book, this diagram here uh, that you have on your handout here. The basis of secularization is the division of the world into two spheres, which she pictures as upper and lower. Now, upper and lower may be a little misleading. Upper is not like the better or the pure or whatever. It's just the way she divides. She could go left and right. I don't know if she chose not to do that because of politics. I don't want to go left and right. Not doing that. Um, but it's just this upper, lower Whether upper or lower is not her point. Her point is different, separated. That's her point, separated. So let's talk about what's separated. The private sphere, and then the line, and then the public sphere. They're separate. All right, what's in the private sphere? Well, things such as personal preferences, values. It's characterized by non-rational, non-cognitive. That means not thinking. There's not a thinking aspect of this. Uh, subjective, relative to uh, particular groups. This would be the wheelhouse of postmodernism, the truth for me, truth for you. Well, that's true true for you, but it's not true for me. So that's that realm. Uh, And so religion, myth, preferences, values is a key word. Values goes in all of that. That's the the upper line. We'll just keep with her upper lower thing. And then the public sphere, uh, scientific knowledge, rational, verifiable, facts binding on everyone, objective, universally valid. Now, that's where we do our work. That's where we do our politics. That's where we do our our medical research. That's where we do our coaching in in volleyball or football. 
That's where we live our public lives down there with things that we all agree are verifiable facts. That's the bifurcation. Do you see it? Those two things. You're going to see it again and again and again. Her basic premise is don't accept this. Don't accept. I mean, would God say this? That there's these two different realms and I'm in your upper realm. You can have the rest. No, he wouldn't. So religion here has no place at the table in the lower area. No place at all. Um, Christopher Reeve, paralyzed actor. Some of you remember from the Superman movie that was um, paralyzed in, a, I think, an equestrian accident. Uh, addressing the debate over embryonic stem cell research, which he would very much advocate, whatever would be helpful to people in his condition. Uh, quote, when matters of public policy are debated, no religion should have a seat at the table. Wow. What an assertion. But you must know as you look at that, that you can nod your head saying, that's our culture right there. It isn't just Christopher Reeve with embryonic stem cell research. Isn't it politics? Isn't it everything? Isn't it school, government school? Isn't it, you know, elementary classrooms? Isn't it? And we're like, yeah, yeah. I mean, can a coach, you know, pray at the, you know, 50-yard line? Apparently, you got to go to the Supreme Court for that one. Um, See what I'm saying? That bifurcation, that's what secularization is about. You, the religion has no seat at the table. Well, take the word religion out and just say God. God has no seat at the table. And then go back to that statement I made. There was a time that there was God and nothing else. And everything that presently exists not only was originally created by God, but is moment by moment sustained by him. And to tell him he has no place at the table... Well, the Bible would call it foolish. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So why would we Christians agree to it as the rules of the game? That's what she's saying. Don't agree to that. We have to push back on this. And the best way we can do it is not just say that's wrong or whatever. We have to develop a comprehensive Christian worldview by which we can show the flaws in their worldview, expose the flaws, and present something better, a comprehensive, consistent, biblical Christian worldview that's clear and compelling. Every area of life relevant. Yeah, go ahead. I don't know. I haven't finished the book yet. Um, so I'm, you know, third of the way through. Um, probably not. And I understand what you're saying is like, look, 17th century, Europe was running blood red with religious wars, Protestant Catholic wars. And I think that was the political slash religious origination of that separation. It's like, we are done with this. We're not going to go to war anymore. So we've got to find some way to do a country with, without that going on. So I don't think so much a theocracy, um, you know, what she's arguing for. I'm just saying what we got is like, we, we had to find some way we could talk to each other because we simply don't agree. We, we don't agree. But this is where she, I think she's more arguing for worldview, a consistent worldview. The thing that's interesting about God is unlike, you know, communists, uh, like all the utopians end up being coercive. They force the people who don't agree to, uh, to conform or die. Amazingly, God doesn't do that. I mean, ultimately, yes, God will kill his enemies eternally, ultimately. But he allows dissent for a while. We see that now that we Baptists are separation of church and state people. We're like, we can't coerce people. As a Baptist, and I'm reading Daniel 6, and Darius loved Daniel, throws him in the lion den, got trapped by his own edict. No one will pray to any god but me, right? He's like, what did I do? So he gets through that night, goes and says, Daniel, has your God been able to deliver you? 
Yes, he has. And I never did anything against you, O king. He said, all right. And then he issues a decree saying that everyone in the Medo-Persian Empire should honor the God of Daniel. I'm like, don't do that. As a Baptist, I'm like, don't do that. We can't, by political coercion, force people to believe in our God. So I don't think she's going to argue for that. Whether she does or she doesn't, I'm not. Okay? I seriously doubt she does too. But I'll let you know when I finish. i got two-thirds of the book to go. Lots of bike riding to go. Um, all right, let's keep going. What is a worldview? The way human beings make sense of the world. That's what we're talking about. It's a mental map. The asking and answering of fundamental questions about the world and everything in it. So pause. For a long time, I have realized that understanding worldview and assigning some basic questions to ask people is a great way to share your faith. What do you believe about where all this came from? Ask and listen. What do you believe about where we're heading? What do you believe about why there's so many problems in the world? And listen, have a conversation. I think this is a great way to share our faith. And then I think this is fundamental to our pro- program here is ask and then say, you know, as you listen, it's like, you're not going to say this, but we, we're thinking we have a better answer to those questions than you do. And we want to give you the biblical answers. So that's what worldview is. Mental map. Philip Johnson in his uh, foreword to Percy's book said this. A wor- worldview is a collection of prejudices. That's an interesting statement. What is a prejudice? It's a prejudged thing. It's something we are already committed to. Yeah, that's about right. And then everything fits around that. Do the secularists have prejudices? Oh, absolutely they do. Materialism is a fundamental commitment the scientists make. The rules of the game are every... Darwinism may be wrong, but whatever takes its place has to be naturalistic materialism. Those are the rules of the scientific game. Why? Because we can't let God in. All right, so that's a prejudice. They've, uh, they already have set that up. That's a commitment, a pre-commitment. Worldview is that. that it's, a, it's an arrangement of pre-commitments that we make that, that answers everything. All right? It's just humorous that he put it that way. But he said, if so, the prejudices are necessary because we can't start from a blank slate and investigate everything from scratch by ourselves. When someone tells me that he receives guidance from God in prayer or someone else tells us science is our only way of knowing anything for sure or there is no objective difference between good and evil, those are all just different kind of assertions people would make. Philip Johnson says, I need to have some verifiable frame of reference to tell me at once whether he's merely deluded or is saying something that's sufficiently sensible to merit some serious consideration. All three of those statements come from a a worldview. Philip Johnson was a professor of law at Berkeley. He's written a lot of books uh, criticizing Darwinism, theory of evolution. Uh, Until recently, such critiques would get most scholars blackballed at any secular institution of higher learning. More and more, such reason questioning is gaining acceptance. Because people like Philip Johnson, Michael Behe with Darwin's Black, Black Box, most recently Eric McTaxis, we'll see later in this course, God willing, have shown a cogent worldview in which scientific evidence for belief in God is central. Christians are winning that worldview battle. So more and more scientists are just coming out saying Darwinism is bad science. And we're not playing by those rules anymore. They're not even believers in Christ. They're like, we can't keep operating within these strictures because it's just nonsense. It's just simple nonsense. And they're more and more like not losing their jobs and are able to, they're turning the tide. 
<clears throat> worldview governs our thinking about everything, even when we're unaware of it. Like the old statement we talked about last time, does a fish know it's wet? So it is with our worldview. We don't really understand how our culture is affecting us or what our worldview is about that if we're not self-consciously trying to study it. So we're surrounded by worldview examples, um, non-Christian or or unbiblical examples. For example, the Marxist claims that human behavior is ultimately shamed by economic circumstances. That's a worldview. That's how they see reality. The Freudian attributes everything to repressed sexual instincts. Scientific materialist believes matter is all there ever is, has been, or will be. And reduces everything to scientific laws and random chance. Uh, the behavioral psychologist regards humans as stimulus response mechanisms. The hedonists seek sensory pleasures however they can be obtained. All, behind all of these words is, our, is worldview. They have a way of looking at everything. And so we have to go into worldview training. We have to, we have to work with And she gives these three basic kind of this framework which is simple, it should be very familiar to all of us, but then you're like, well, how can we use it? And and much of her book is teaching how to do it. So the three are creation. How did it all begin? Where did we come from? So the the story of origin. Uh, Fall. What went wrong? What is the source of evil and suffering? And then redemption. What can we do about it? How can the world be set right again? So now listen, under these three headings, creation, fall, redemption, you can write other questions than these. You can develop other questions. But this is the, the, these are the three basic kind of framework you're going to lay on top of every person to find out how they answer that and to critique and to evaluate worldviews. So I added some extra questions that I've used in sharing my faith. How can I know right from wrong? Uh, these are individual questions. Why am I alive? Why am I alive? What is my purpose in life? Uh, where am I headed? What will happen to me when I die? So th- these are very, very relevant for individuals and for whole societies. All right, so here's an overview of, of Percy's book. Uh, part one, understanding the sacred-secular dichotomy that cages in Christianity. Just understand what it is. Understanding and developing a worldview that can be applied to all aspects of our life, especially our work in this world. By understanding the grid of all worldviews, we can evaluate unbiblical worldviews and analyze where they go wrong. Strongly advocating the Kuiper adage that we saw last time. This is uh, Christ transforming culture. Quote, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. So if you're going to say, all right, uh, what was your question? Theodicy? Theocracy, okay, God ruling. Yeah, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Um, where are we heading? Like the new heaven, new earth. How would you describe that in terms of its governmental style? The new heaven, new earth, the redeemed, we're in resurrection bodies. What is there a government there? Yeah, it's called the kingdom of heaven. What's like at the center of the kingdom of heaven? The king. What's the relationship that all of the created beings, all of the humans, the redeemed humans will have? Obedience. Um, can someone read, I'm, I'm shooting in the dark here, I'm hoping for it, Daniel 7.27. Someone read that one. Pick out Daniel 7.27. This is dangerous because I have a long handout. Um, 
But I, I just feel led by the Lord to do that. Daniel 7.27. Someone read that. Daniel 7 is one of the great chapters in the Bible. It's about God's sovereignty over the four beasts that come up out of the ocean, one after the other. One beast, then the next, then the next, then the next. Four tyrannical, oppressive world empires. God is sovereign over them, judges them, crushes them, sets up the kingdom of the Son of Man. The Son of Man visions in the center of it. He comes to the throne of the Ancient of Days and receives sovereign power over all the kingdoms of the earth. He is the Son of Man. All authority in heaven and earth is given to him. In the meantime, the saints suffer. They're crushed. They're oppressed. But then they triumph. Someone read it. 727. I think that's right. That's an amazing verse. All of the sovereignty and power and rule on earth will be given to the saints. The saints, plural. The next statement, his kingdom will last forever. Wait, wait, wait. Whose? His. Who's the his? God. And then to make it clear, all rulers will serve and obey him. So he's the king of kings forever, in eternity. So that's where we're heading. That's where we're going. Domains in the new heaven, new earth, ruler, rulership given to some and others, submitting to them and all that, but over all of them is the king, God, Jesus. That's where we're heading. You're like, well, I'm not asking that. I'm like, 21st century America, what are we doing there? Well, that's an interesting question. It's difficult, political science, all that. What she would say is, is worldview and biblical truth relevant to the question? If so, then you're thinking right. You're thinking, all right, let's try to figure out a way, a pluralistic way we can get along with unbelievers, wheat and weeds, we're all mixed in together. How can we do government where they don't agree and we're not doing Daniel 6, compelling them and forcing them or we'll kill them? That's been done. It was called Christendom. And, you know, if you didn't agree, what did they do? I'm talking about so-called Christian kings from Charlemagne on. You don't agree with the official position, they kill you. Uh, we Baptists are thumbs down on that. That's bad. Don't do that. All right? So, um, no, I'm not arguing for that in the meantime. I'm just saying, where are we heading? It's just good to know where we're heading. We're absolutely heading there. And none of us are going to have a problem with it. Remember how Jesus said, take my yoke upon you? He means yield to my kingship. And we will take it, our, his yoke on, on us, and we'll have that yoke on us forever, but we'll forever find that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Uh, so Daniel 7.27. Pretty awesome verse. All right, where was I? Oh, yes, um, walking through an overview of her book. All right, so fundamental to her is something called, theologians call the cultural mandate. Um, it's not found, that language is not found in Genesis 128, but is a very important theological um, concept. Someone read that for us, uh, Genesis 3, uh, 128, 128. So this is like taking dominion language that's key, Genesis 128. Uh, I think anyone who likes Kuiper's statement there's not a square inch, that statement, would embrace Genesis 128 as, a, as at least one of the many verses that would support their, their, their concept. Is there's nothing on the surface of the earth that's not relevant to God's rule, but he's committed it to us in his image to take dominion over the earth, to fill it, subdue it, etc. So as we do that, as we move out, Adam and Eve move out from the Garden of Eden and there's, there's four rivers that come out of the garden and, and, you know, the gold in Havilah and all that sort of stuff. And it's like, all right, God didn't intend for the human race to stay in the Garden of Eden. Wanted us to take over the whole earth, right? And uh, Habakkuk 2.14 just sums up like all, of, like all of human history related to the earth. And that is the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So we're supposed to go out and discover 
what glory there is in creation and give him the credit for it. And we're going to do that in the new heaven, new earth too, aren't we? We're going to see the glory of God in the new heaven, new earth, and we're going to worship him. We will not be idolaters. We will just praise him. That's what we're going to do forever. So we move out. We take dominion in the name of the Lord to see his greatness and his beauty and his glory in everything we do. So this is the cultural mandate. Then it's like, well, what if I'm um, a lawyer? What if I'm a mechanic? What if I'm a doctor? Whatever. Relevant, relevant, relevant. Always relevant. God is relevant to everything you do. That's her premise here. That's her premise. Do not accept this bifurcation. Do not allow your, your company or whatever to tell you that your faith has nothing to do with the research you're doing on proteins or has nothing to do with how you handle the property case as a lawyer or has nothing to do with how you teach you know, mathematics to a seventh, a seventh grade class. We're just not going to accept that. And you're like, well, you're going to have a hard life. <laughs> well, I'm not saying it's going to be easy because there is a lot of pushback here. Uh, we understand that. All right? Fill the earth and subdue it. Part two, creation. Challenging the reigning creation myth. And what is it? Naturalistic evolution, materialistic evolution, Darwinian evolution. Is it a myth? Oh, of course it is. Absolutely a myth. I mean, come on. Simple question. Where did the first living cell come from? Is there any smart person on earth who doesn't believe in God who can give me a good answer to that? Answer, no. No one can. We'll get to all that. But that's a good question to ask. How come the Darwinists cannot tell us where the first living cell came from? This is really fun. All right? I heard this. This is, this is really a humorous statement, but it stuck with me. I was listening to this yesterday. According to Dar- Darwinism, natural selection is, the slogan is, survival of the fittest. Heard that, right? But what Darwin- Darwinism cannot tell you is of the arrival of the fittest. <laughs> That's good. I love it. Where did the fittest come from to begin with? No answer. So that's, that's interesting. We'll get to all that, God willing. Part three. All right, let me finish part two. Um, so expose it, critique its scientific claims, its worldview implications, how aggressively Darwinism has extended far beyond the bounds of science. It's not just about science. It's this evolutionary thought affects almost, it affects almost every field. Uh, To refute all this, you have to dig into the concept of intelligent design, that God has left clear evidence of of intelligence everywhere. Uh, There's evidence for this and that God claims it all. It's his. All right, part three, history. Why evangelicals do not have a strong worldview tradition? Why have we so meekly accepted the secularism foisted on us by our culture? I've not read that yet. I don't know what she's going to say, but it's going to be interesting. And then part four, personal and practical application of worldview thinking, submitting to everything, uh, submitting everything to the Lordship of Christ, being conformed to Christ's thinking in all, all things, union with Christ in his death and his life, extending that to every area of our lives. So how to think Christianly, think Christianly about your profession, how to think Christianly about your parenting, how to think Christianly about education, about everything. Just an integrated worldview, that seems right, doesn't it? Doesn't it seem to be, like is the Bible saying, hey, I'm only here to teach you religious truth? Not at all. It's making claims. So anyway, that's her book. Now along with that is James Sire's work, uh, The Universe Next Door. Uh, He wrote a book um, on worldview. Um, Eight basic uh, worldview questions. I stuck this in here because she alludes to it and I think it's helpful, but I'm going to go back to Percy's book in a moment. But this is just more worldview stuff. What is prime reality, the really real? These are eight basic questions a worldview seeks to answer. What is the truly real? 
Uh, second, what is the nature of external reality, the world around us, the world that, the external to us, the world around us? What is a human being? What do we believe about anthropology? What happens to a person at death? Uh, why is it possible to know anything at all, epistemology? Uh, how do we know right from wrong, morality? Uh, what is the meaning of human history? And what personal life-orienting core commitments are consistent with this worldview? Those are basic worldview questions. Absorb these as an evangelist. Ask questions. Get in conversations with people. Ask them what they think about these things. And do you not see, if you get in a robust conversation, if, if they have time and they're interested, they will talk to you about these things. You can see the opportunities you'll have. Now, it takes some skill to learn how to marshal the Word of God. Um, but that's going to be helpful. Now, as I was writing this outline, I was like, which direction am I going? Am I going Nancy Percy or am I going worldview? Um, so I, I stuck with Percy, and that's what I, I'm going to do. Worldview is, is important. I broke off and spent about half a day researching and then giving up on research and just doing it myself, and I came up with 23 characteristics of Western culture, such as um, materialism in the sense of prosperity, the fact that we actually disagree with Jesus, that a man's life does, in fact, consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's our culture. Uh, the strong should protect the weak. That's actually a, a cultural value. It's Christian, fundamentally Christian. But the, you know, the uh, critical race theory people and all that that have victimization, la- layers of victim and all that, and their basic premise is strong should protect the weak. They don't understand they're sawing off the Christian branch they're sitting on. The Vikings didn't think the strong should protect the weak. Um, so anyway, we'll get into all that. I came up with 23 of them. It was in this handout, made the handout 14 pages long. And I'm like, there's no way that we can get through all this. So I pulled it out, and at some point I'm going to roll it out, and I'd be interested in seeing what you guys think about my, my views, good or bad. I didn't even try to evaluate them, good or bad. It's just, what do I think Americans would generally agree to, Christian or non-Christian? It was actually very interesting, but that I pulled off. I hope I didn't delete it. I don't think I did, but we'll walk through that. All right, now let's uh, follow Percy now where she leads. Breaking out of the sacred secular grid. So she gives this case study of Sarah, a good Lutheran, who was working at Planned Parenthood. So this is decades ago, um, but at any rate. Sarah was a practicing Christian who went to church every week, evangelical Lutheran church. She also worked at Planned Parenthood, uh, counseling women who were considering abortion. The clinic where she worked was in the Bible Belt. Almost all the women who worked there with her were regular churchgoers. During their breaks, they would uh, discuss their Bible study groups or their children's Sunday school programs. She grew up in a solidly evangelical home and had had a personal crisis of faith as a teenager that ended up resulting in her strongly committing herself to her childhood faith. But when Sarah went to college, she was immersed in the liberal relativism taught on most campuses today. She took courses on sociology, anthropology, philosophy, where it was assumed that truth is culturally relative. Ideas and beliefs are all shaped historically by cultural forces and are not true or false in any absolute way. Christianity was treated as irrelevant to the world of scholarship. Professors simply ignored it as though it were so irrational it didn't even merit being considered. Sarah was completely unprepared to handle this assault on her faith. Her church enabled her to have assurance of personal salvation but gave her no intellectual resources to challenge the ideologies taught in her classes. The church's teaching assumed, therefore, a sharp divide between the sacred and secular realms. So the church itself bought into this divide. I mean, we're here to save your soul, not tell you how to work out out in the world there. 
So they, it just kind of, kind of bought into that. So Sarah just absorbed this secular mindset. Her mental world was split. Her religion was locked up within the boundaries it had been assigned, dealing only with worship, personal salvation, personal morality, had nothing to say about every other aspect of life. Western culture was all based on this compartmentalization, as we said. Sacred-secular, fact-value, public-private. Her faith was sincere, but it was reduced to the realm of purely private experience. Her public life was defined by secular materialism. So she had no problem working at Planned Parenthood and trying to do some good there within the structure of Planned Parenthood for the women that were coming. Sarah's Christianity was a collection of truths, plural, right? So that would be deity of Christ, virgin birth, miracles, resurrection from the dead, all these doctrinal things, things in a confession statement. She believed every one of them, but she lacked any sense of how Christianity was truth with a capital T, overreaching every area of life, social issues, history, politics, anthropology, everything. She didn't have that. didn't have a sense of that. So um, Sarah's divided world came crashing down when Congress started holding hearings on partial birth abortion. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, She was aghast. She started to evaluate her secular mindset and take it apart plank by plank. She knew she couldn't reject partial birth abortion but accept all the other abortions. She was able to see that and so she started to say what led me to this place so that's a case study we could have so many case studies in other areas of life but this would be one where somebody's just operating in a very divided way um, how they do um, their life so divided minds many christians have the same fact value public private dichotomy christians it seems don't have the mind of christ when it comes to their professions or their politics or their engagement with the surrounding world The internalization and privatization of our Christian faith is a terrible blow to our effect on the world. We don't know how to integrate what we delight in on Sunday morning with what we do for a living the rest of the week. So most Christians also think the ministry and Christian work is only for pastors and missionaries. The rest of Christians at best just try to be moral at work, you know, not lie or cheat, be nice people. Um, Look look for opportunities to invite people to church. (laughs) And that's being a Christian employee, right? But not thinking Christianly about your profession itself. They don't, have a way, they don't know how to integrate their faith with what they actually do. All right, so the basic toolbox here. Comprehensive truth claim. These are the three verses I read. I'm not going to read them again. But Jesus is the truth. And then I added this, Colossians 2, 3. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So you look at that statement, Colossians 2, 3. What is the significance of the word all? in that verse. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Okay. All right. It's complete, so that fits into her total truth view. Yeah, go ahead, Ben. The supposedly secular questions. So you're at law school. Would that be relevant to your future life as a lawyer? Christ, relevant. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of legal knowledge. Wow. Can you roll that out at Duke Duke Law School this week? What do you think? (laughs) I'm sorry, I didn't hear what you said. Oh, tell me about that. What's going on? Wow. Well, it's amazing. 
I think especially in your profession, the idea that the Bible wouldn't have much to say about laws is ridiculous. I mean, if you've read the Pentateuch, there's laws in there, like property laws and, and you know, personal injury. I mean, it's kind of in there. Is it, like, there's a heritage there, isn't there? Yeah, I would, I would say so. But imagine the secularism that being told the Bible is not relevant at all to the legal profession. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting. All right, so, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ is not just a source of spiritual wisdom and knowledge, but all wisdom and knowledge. Or again, look at some of these verses. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So what wisdom are we talking about? Well, you know, spiritual wisdom. Well, I, if you read the book of Proverbs, I don't sense that that's just spiritual wisdom. I mean, there is no more nuts and bolts, rubber meets the road book than Proverbs. I actually find it challenging to preach the gospel from Proverbs. I'm, I'm not joking. I've looked at it. I thought if all I had was the book of Proverbs, how would I preach the gospel? There's a couple of verses that, that you can use. But it's not like Isaiah 53 or something like that where it's just very obvious how you can preach it. It's very practical, very nuts and bolts-ish, etc. Now, again, there are ways to do it, but it's just, yeah, wisdom. And then you look at this, all right? Remember Solomon... The Lord appeared, said, ask me for something. You're king now. What do you want? And he asked for wisdom. And the Lord was pleased with that request and gave him wisdom, greater than anyone else that lived at the time. And this is what it says, 1 Kings 4. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the east and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than any other man, including Ethan the Ezraite, whoever that was, right? Wiser than Heman. Now that's saying something, to be wiser than Heman or Calcol or Darda, the sons of Mahol. I don't know any of these people. It's, it's interesting, whoever these incredibly smart people were. And his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. Now look what it says. Verse 32, he spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005. Verse 33, he described plant life. Well, wait a minute. Plant life? What do we call that? It's called Biology. From the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He also taught about animals and birds, reptiles and fish, zoology. Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who heard of his wisdom. Now that's a different take on wisdom then. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of that. To know plant life in light of the fear of the Lord. That's interesting. That's what we're talking about. Pure integration of everything. There's no bifurcation there at all. Not just spiritual or religious knowledge, but all areas of knowledge were given to Solomon by God. God is the starting point for all wisdom and knowledge since he alone is the only self-existent reality in the universe. Everything in the universe came from him and goes back to him. Someone read this, Romans 11, this beautiful doxology. Well, I don't think we can meditate on those verses enough. And you look at that last one that I've underlined, for from him and through him and to him are all things. That's, that says it all, doesn't it? I mean, you see how that verse supports what Nancy Percy is saying here? There is no bifurcation, not in God's mind. And if we've foolishly accepted it, we should not do so. Instead, we should say from him and through him and back to him. I tend to add the word back in my mind. It's going back to him on judgment day. We're going to give an account. Everything goes back to God. To him be the glory forever. That's a unifying concept there.
doesn't sound at all like Paul is compartmentalizing God. Everything in the universe comes from God and goes back to God, and all things can and should glorify God. That includes all aspects of culture. Rocket science, right? literature, economics, medical research, tax accounting, civil engineering, home construction, sculpture, genetic research, everything. Now, I've read the Bible through many times. I know that as, in my career as a mechanical engineer, there were many important pieces of infor- information I needed to do my job that were not found in the Bible. I know that. Okay, I'm aware of that. So if my boss came in and, and I'm scouring through Leviticus to try to answer a, a, pertin- a certain structural thing that I'm working on, he's like, what are you doing? Well, I know not to do that. But what I'm saying is I'm not going to go so far the other way and say that the, the, the 66 books of the Bible have nothing to do with what I do Monday through Friday, 8 to 5. That is not true. And so that harmonization, we know that there's extra, extra knowledge and wisdom and information. The Bible addresses and talks about that. And so we are going to look outside the Bible for key pieces of information. But there's a harmonization here that we're talking about. Creation, fall, redemption is the basic worldview toolbox. We have to work with that. And I don't really know how to do that. I was very familiar with those three words and familiar with that. That's the meta-narrative of the Bible. I understand that. How it could be used to expose Marxism or secular materialism, whatever, she's very good at teaching you how to do that. All right? What is, what is the, the uh, atheistic, scientific, materialistic view of origins? Well, we kind of know what that is. Uh, what's their answer to why there's problems and troubles in the world? You know, they, it, step by step. It's pr- very, very helpful. So let's walk through it with the time we have left. Creation. The Christian message, when we share the gospel, should not begin with, you are a sinner, accept Christ as your Savior. Now, in the, Bible, in the gospel outline we give you, like every week in your bulletin, we don't start with that. Remember? We start with God, and in that outline, it's God the Creator. So I've known this for years. I've always started my gospel presentation with God the Creator. Because it doesn't matter who you're talking to, that's a great starting point. Even if somebody did, was a non-Christian raised in the Bible Belt, still start there. But how much more if it's a visiting scholar from China? They're not starting with Scripture, but you can start with creation. God the Creator. Because God is the Creator, He is the King. And because He's the King, He's the lawgiver. And because He's a lawgiver, He's a judge. You see how it all flows from creation. Because God made it, He gets to rule it. He gets to language. It's His stuff. And you can see how that's a good place. But, but if you just start with you're a sinner, you need to repent, it's like many of the people in our 21st century, they don't actually know what you mean. And so it's not a good place to start. We start with creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Paul started with the pagan philosophers in Athens that way, right? The God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth. That sounds a lot like the, the God-man-Christ response that we're giving. It's not an accident. I saw that that's what Paul was doing in Athens. That's how he started The God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth. See that? Creator, king. All right. The Bible teaches that God created everything uh, alone, from nothing, for his own pleasure and glory, and that he sustains at every moment. Thus, his word, his laws, give the universe its structure and its ongoing purpose. God is the source of the laws of physical nature. God is also the source of the laws of human nature, morality, so ethics, justice, politics, economics, the arts, even clear thinking, logic. Psalm 119.91, your laws endure to this day for all things serve you. What an incredible statement. 
all things serve you. And if you say, well, things, what, like inanimate objects, yes, they all serve God's purpose. All things serve you. There is no philosophically neutral subject matter. So you think about this. Remember that big catch of fish? Remember that? Remember after the resurrection and they worked all night and they hadn't caught anything and Jesus said, try the other side of the boat. Remember that? From the shore. And they caught so many fish they couldn't pull them all in. 153 big fish, right? How did those fish get in the net? One of two ways. Either he created them in the net or he made the pre-existing fish swim into the net. I'm thinking that kind of, one of those two. I'm okay with either one. Um, what do you think is more likely? I think he made, made the existing fish swim in the net, but he only chose the big ones. <laughs> I think that's so cool. All right, all you big fish, swim into the net. You all need to take a left-hand turn, all right? And they did. All things serve you. Did the fish have a choice? They had no choice. Jesus wanted those fish in the net, and so they went in the net. So you ponder Psalm 119.91, rest of the day. All things serve you. Pretty awesome. All right, secondly, fall. The universality of creation is tragically marred um, by the fall. It's matched, she says, by the university of the fall. It's, marred. it's like God made everything, and everything's affected by the fall. Everything in some way. All parts of creation, including our minds, are drawn up into the rebellion against God, the creator and ruler of all things. Our willful disobedience makes us blind and deaf to God. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The darkening of human minds through sin is complete and pervasive. Ephesians 4. So I tell you this and insist on it, the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. It's a very important verse. Darkened minds. Creation itself was cursed by human sin. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you'll eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you'll eat plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. How big a deal is that in everyday life, in your profession? It's huge. The creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. That is a straddling verse on the last two. You've got, got creation, fall, redemption. This one verse serves purpose in both of those. Tells us why things are so bad as they are, but it tells us also beautifully where we're going. We have a hope for creation. Etc. Anyway, back into the, into the fall section. Unbelievers still function in God's world. They're upheld by common grace and the patterns of God's original creation gifts, being in the image of God. We don't go around telling people they're junk. If they're junk, why would God work so hard to redeem them? You have a, 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 a piece of cheap thing that breaks, you throw it away. But if something is of tremendous value, it's grievous when it's marred, and then you would argue it, it gets fixed. You try to fix it. And so we have value because we're created in the image of God. Non-Christians are still capable of uncovering amazing truths embedded in God's creation. 
And we Christians can and should benefit from that. We learn from non-Christian scientists or legal thinkers, right? We can learn from them because God opens his hand and gives them insights that we don't have. All truth is God's truth. That is true, scientific truth, legal truth, uh, biological truth, all of that. And we should, quote, plunder the Egyptians. A lot of people talk about that. Take from them. They're pagans. They're not doing it for the glory of God, but it's still a treasure. There's still value in their insights and in the techniques they've come up with and things like it. We can learn from them. Uh, Taking the best of secular scholarship, but all the while showing how it fits best into a biblical worldview. All right? While non-Christians may lead the way in details of knowledge, only Christians can weave all of that knowledge into a cohesive, wise, whole system of truth. That's an important statement. Our worldview wins. It is the best. None of the others are good. They all lead to bad ends. And we have to be able to show that and say, this is what God says about creation, fall, redemption. And walk through it. Therefore, Christians' approach to sciences and fields of knowledge should be constructive and critical at the same time. What can we learn from them? But let's also criticize how they're using it, how it's fit into a system. We have to be aware of both creation and fall. If you emphasize one too much or the other too much, you end up in a bad way, even as a Christian. We have to understand both. Created in the image of God with incredible capabilities, but fallen grievously into sin. Understanding both of those. And then finally, redemption. Redemption is as comprehensive as creation fall. God does not only save our souls, but leaves our minds to function, or God does not just save our souls, but leave our minds to function on their own. Not at all. He gave us the mind of Christ in every area of life. Conversion gives us a new direction for our thoughts, emotions, wills, habits, for everything. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. We are transformed by the renewing of our minds. This passage should not be seen merely in our spiritual and religious life, but in everything we do for the Lord in this world. So we go back to the cultural mandate, and we seek to, as I already quoted Habakkuk, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I gave you verse 13 there, Habakkuk 2.13. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire? The nations exhaust themselves for nothing. That's the secular, godless work, the secular, godless empires they build. God's going to crush them. He's going to level them. And instead, the earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for the time we've had to walk through these worldview issues, these themes. Pray that you would strengthen us as we consider them and as we continue to learn how we can challenge the faulty worldview of unbelievers. Ultimately, that you would be glorified in their conversion, their salvation, and also in our effect in the world in the time that we have, the brief time we have here on earth. And now go with this as we go to, do, uh, to, to worship you, corporate worship, as we sing and pray and, and, uh, and um, worship together. And, and as I preach and, and we all listen to the Gospel of Mark, just be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.